Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hello, Suraya, and welcome to the Explore This podcast. We're so excited that you're here to join us this evening. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. In conjunction with Valentine's Day this year, we wanted to talk to you about personal finance management as couples. And for the record, we are not here to dish out personal finance advice as if any one of us are experts, but we have Soraya here to share with us her experiences from a personal capacity. And I think one of the most important things that we do want to highlight is to realize you have to do what works for you and your partner. There is no one size fits all when it comes to personal finance management and we wanted to make that clear on the outset. So Soraya, let's start off with a very hard question. Why do you think couples get into money-related arguments? Sure. I think, Sarah, and because you've done the disclaimer in the beginning, and it's great that you say, you know, do what works for you. I also want to give a disclaimer on my side, which is that I still don't know what the hell I'm doing <laughs> most of the time. It's only in hindsight that we know, ah, okay, that was a good decision and that wasn't, right? And that kind of process of experimentation, trying out to see what works, what doesn't. Of course, it, it's a, something that's always, always ongoing. But to answer your question, I mean, like, I'm a, I'm a money nerd and I love reading how people navigate personal finance and the personal side of personal finance intertwines a lot with relationships. So when you ask me questions like why people fight over money matters, it usually boils down to, to one or two things, to be honest. If they don't have enough money, then they fight because they don't have enough money. Uh, but if they do have enough, then their expectations don't match in terms of who pays for what or, you know, when as, as someone in relationship wanted something that is not provided by the other person. So that's why I think people fight in a relationship get into money-related arguments. I think you summed it up really well. The very fundamental reason of not having enough money and thereby leading to a lot of disputes on what we should spend on or what we shouldn't spend on. And secondly, what you mentioned about expectations not aligning. And I think that can be applicable for couples that sometimes have a lot of money as well, right? So, you know, we want to take it on a more personal note now and ask you about your own personal experience, right? If you don't mind, take a walk down memory lane with us and maybe you could share with us your inherent values and principles about money that you brought into your relationship with your partner when you guys just first started dating. I mean, I have been married for a little over a year now, but it's important to note here that even before I was married, I've, I've always been in a relationship and... It, when I date around, I try my best to be a feminist in relationship. And what I mean by that is that as much as I want to be equal, I also want to stop this expectation of the man have by hook or by crook must be the provider. Like I think that as a feminist, I want to be able to, you know, like pull my own weight. But at the same time, I don't want it to seem like I'm taking advantage of people. I think my approach is all about, I guess, minimizing harm. So if something is not right with the other person, then I, I try my best to like take a step back and see where I can improve on. So with this like kind of qualities, when I say like, you know, I approach it from with a very like feminist lens, 
I, I, I expect we share our expenses for, for dates. I don't like it when the other person pays. I'll give you an example. Like during first date, with my current partner now, with my husband now, on our first date, I told him straight off the bat, I would like to go Dutch. I would like to pay for my own meal. I also told him that if we were to, we had a nice date and then at the end of it, like when we were clear that we want to keep kind of like have at least like a second date, like I do not want, nor do I expect gifts. And it's just something that I have been doing when I was um, dating around. It's just, I guess, like with men especially, right? So much marketing out there is targeted to men telling him that he, in order to woo women, like he have to give them a lot of presents. And I just didn't want to impose that on him because I like him so much. So that's what I did personally for my own relationship. One thing that I think is evident, Raya, my observation is that you take the very transparent and honest approach right from the get-go so it doesn't catch anyone that you're dating by surprise as to what your money values and principles are. So I think that's definitely food for thought for all of us, right? It makes me think about how do I set and communicate the expectations that I have with my own partner. And granted, Soraya, you are a personal finance blogger. And I think your partner going to the relationship knew what he was getting into when he first started dating you. But for ordinary folks like Janice and myself, who are not so much a finance nerd like you are, approaching this topic with our partners might be hard, especially since money, like other topics, for example, sex, is considered very taboo, right? So I want to ask you, given that these conversations are something that are challenging to navigate around, how can we start these conversations with our partners to understand each other's approaches and outlook to finances? And why is it actually important? Sure. I mean, there's this one really nice tip, which I learned a while back, that if you want to learn about someone, you ask them um, open-ended questions. And that is true, you know, when you want to, in a romantic partnership or among friends, you ask them questions like, so what do you think about X, Y, and Z, right? So you you ask them questions like, how do you like to spend your money? Where do you spend your time? Like, if let's say you go on grocery shopping dates, and I, oh, what do you think of like certain products? Do you buy this often? So you don't give them like, you know, like, oh, this is good. Don't you think this is good? Or like, ah, oh, this is horrible. Don't you think this is horrible? So that's what is called close-ended type of questions. That's also kind of like a very interrogative way of asking questions. Like you're expecting them to agree with you. And usually during courtship, you know, people tend to like, try and agree with the other person because, you know, they like each other so much. So, you know, personally for myself, I asked him a lot of questions about his childhood. I asked about his his parents' dynamic, like does his mom have a career or, or was she a stay-at-home mom? That tells a lot about a person. I asked him about like investment-related. What do you think about like crypto or what do you think about a certain certain companies or certain blue chip companies, especially if it came out in the news? So, I guess at the end of the day, it just boils down to like just having really nice conversations with that person and trying to find out what are their positions about certain things and also trying to find out like in which areas that they are still forming their own opinions. And, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm quite transparent when it comes with money matters. So when I am asked about like certain things in return, it's really nice when, you know, you meet someone who also challenges you on your own like train of thought and from there you can 
have a really nice gauge of like where they stand on on certain certain topics. So to answer your question, that was a long winded way of saying ask open ended questions, also including、uh, money, but also you know just about everything else. Just ask them what they think about whatever that it, it, that you're curious about. What is one thing that you found surprising about your partner's approach to finance? Surprising, perhaps. Okay, this is something that I found out after we're married, not before. So, I mean, I thought that I came into the relationship like like rah rah rah. I'm a feminist. <laughs> She is not a feminist, which is fine for me. When I came into the relationship, like I, I told him that okay, I'm not expecting to pay for certain things, or like I expect to like I want to keep working. So all of those are good. But before we got married, he bought a new car and also a house, and I thought that he bought it for himself. But it turns out that he bought it because he was brought up with the expectation of being a provider. Right, and obviously, you know, like both a car and a house, both of them together are very, both very expensive purchases. And when I realized that, I was kind of shocked because I've always, you know, had this expectation that, like, of course, we'll pay half on everything. Like, of course, like that's just a given. But like he himself had this idea that I'm a man, therefore I must be a provider. So I think like. For his part, he's also kind of like learning and also unlearning、um, some things and entering the relationship into with me and try and figure out what is the best way to go forward. So on that particular side, you know, we had a, again we had a really nice chat about it. We agreed that he would take on the car expenses, but I would contribute half to the mortgage. But yeah, that was something that was I thought surprising for myself. Raya, I actually would like to, you know, ask you a little bit more in terms of that whole communication front with your partner, right? You know, having read your blogs, heard your podcasts on radio, it sounds that communication and transparency was definitely a key pillar, especially when you're in the dating phase, so that both of you could understand each other's spending philosophies. And it so happens, I think it seems that you and your husband's philosophy is relatively similar. You, you know, tend to be more on the frugal side than to be massive spenders. But what about in the case of when you're dating, right? And you realize that you and your partner might have very fundamentally different philosophies. One is an extreme saver. One is an extreme spender. How can you navigate this whole conversation, or even try to bridge that gap? And and should you bridge that gap? What do you think about that? I love all the hard questions that you're giving me today. <laughs> uh, so, um, <laughs> based on what I've read, based on a lot of research, you know, like what drives couples apart boils down to resentment, right? So that can be money, that can be mismatched expectations, that can be a thousand and one things. So. If you ask me, how can you know couples who have very very different spending patterns or like saving patterns, how can they stay together? It it boils down to can they accept this trait about each other and change what you can, accept what you can't, right?、Uh, if you can't change it, then accept it, and if you can't accept it, then that's where you know that this is probably not a good idea for you to stay in the relationship. Because it will still come up again and again, like throughout your whole life, basically. Like money is so centered in our relationship, in our life, that you just can't avoid it. It's probably a better idea for you to like not be together anymore. It it kind of goes to that. But if you can accept 
that you know your partner is more spendthrift than than you are and you work on like certain um, strategies together for example okay let's say I've, I've, I've actually like gotten comments from people who say that oh like my husband is like the one who's more spendthrift so what he does is he gives me like the whole salary and then he gets allowance and then he will spend his allowance and that worked out for us that yeah okay that's that's awesome that they found a way that worked for them. This is actually a very, very common strategy used in Japanese households. Like the husband usually like gives his full salary to the wife and they get an allowance. And I thought that's just a really nice way to, um, if, you know, one party is more spendthrift. But on the flip side, I, you know, obviously like spending more than what you can afford is not a good thing. But on the flip side, I've also heard about very unhappy couples which one party saves too much. So in those kind of cases, I think kind of the same principle applies. They still have to have that like communication or like a way for one party to like, okay, this is the amount that I'm going to have for myself and I can use it for whatever that I want. And you do not have authority <laughs> to dictate what I do with this money that we have already decided that I would have for myself. Again, like that's really an awesome way to to proceed about it. So it can be like, you know, the two extremes, like save too much or spend too much. So I hope that answers your question somewhat. You've put it so aptly, right, Raya? At the end of the day, why a lot of couple arguments occur is, is definitely because they are not in sync with each other in terms of their expectations, values, and priorities. And if that's not resolved at the core of it, if you can't change it or if you can't accept it, then it's always going to be that stumbling block in a relationship that's why I think what you pointed out about having those truthful, honest, and transparent conversations, it cannot be emphasized more. But another question that that came up as we were preparing for this conversation, and you know, Janice and myself, we're in our late 20s, approaching the 30s. Um, so we have a lot of conversations with our with our friends. And, and you know, one question that always comes up is when you're dating, when do you think is an appropriate time to ask about your partner's finance? And I know in your case it's obviously different because it was right up the get right off the get-go, right? But in general, when do you think is an appropriate time to to start talking about your partner's finances, especially given our Asian culture, whereby, like I've mentioned, it's it's very sensitive and people are always tiptoeing around it. And in my case, you know, it's always been something that we we talk about. Like between us, money was never like a taboo topic, but we talk about finances and specifically about like how we would manage finances together after we decided to get married. So not even like during the, the serious phase of the relationship, just but like when we decide to be like super serious, like, okay, we, we're going to do this. We're going to like get married. I mean, I'm always like a, a really big believer on not just having conversations. We kind of already covered that. But my personal approach is that when you want to find out information, like offer it first. I believe in that. So let's say wanted to, you know, I wanted to open the subject investment. So I would tell him that, okay, like this is my portfolio. This is how it looks like. I have X amount of money here, here and here. And we did have like some moment when he was like, ah, okay, it's great that you're sharing this with me, but I'm not comfortable sharing yet. And I'm like, okay, so we'll um, figure it out another day. But you know, there's so, so many different ways to approach money topics. For example, you know, cost, rising cost of living. That's a very, very popular topic right now. Talk about like a common thing, like your favorite food, like, Oh, how was it? Oh, the, the price has increased. Is this affecting your food budget? And then you can, you know, open it up from there. So 
Well, personally, again, like like you said, I don't see opening the topic hard or awkward. It's just always kind of felt natural. And I guess if someone wants to open it up with their partners, for me personally, I think it's a good approach that they offer the information up first. For example, if they have something that they want to, you know, confess about a credit card debt, then they should offer it first. Like, oh, my credit card debt, just so you know, because I respect you and like you're, you're going to be my future spouse or whatever. I have this X amount of credit card debt, but I'm working towards like a payment plan. My final payment is X month, X year. And if the other person also, you know, feels like comfortable with sharing his or her own situation, that's good. But if they don't, then you try again another day. So I like the no pressure approach. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I like the no pressure approach. Yeah, I think when it comes to personal finance, it's not about what you ask and what you say, but it's also how you say it, right? You know, it, it should be done in a way that it's not overly aggressive. Like, tell me, I demand to know right now. It has to be done in a way that's, <laughs> you know, empathetic, open, no pressure. So I really like what you said about like, if you want information, offer it first because you are also demonstrating openness on your part. And I think that itself um, says a lot. Correct, yeah. But, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, relationships, right? We are not good, especially if it's for someone that we're hit over heels in love with, right? We're not good judges of characters. Like, love literally makes you a bit more stupid. Tell us more, tell us more. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, no. The chemical, whatever it does in the brain, and then the, I don't know. <laughs> it makes you stupid. There are studies kind of like backing this up. So as much as you want to be rational about the whole thing, you and you look at you look at his face, you look at her face, you're like, oh, never mind now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what what I'm trying to say is that as much as you know, yeah, you should be like rational and try and find out information and all of those are, are important, but there's no such thing as being able to to do it in like you know, like a super rational way. It's quite impossible because of seed chemicals and you can only like improve on whatever pieces that of information that you gathered during your communication, during your talks, and you know, piece the pieces um together in your head or perhaps even together. If you want to go like one step further, you know, there are courses out there teaching, you know, couples on how to open up the conversation. I don't think a lot of people do that, especially in Asian culture. But regardless, if someone wants to do those kind of things, there are resources out there that that support that kind of, you know, style. But also, here's another thing that I want to say about relationship, right? Obviously, here we are assuming that the two parties are good for each other. But there are also relationships where they are not good for each other, right? Whether it is, you know, like, say, for example, a relationship between someone who's a narcissist and someone who is the victim, right? And the narcissist is someone who wants to control, someone who wants to take advantage of um, his or her partner. And, you know, if, if that's the case, then no amount of talking will be good for you because this person is not good for you. So... I just wanted to point that out. It, it is okay if you see red flags and then you you walk away and you know try again with someone else. With relationship, I don't see it as the aim of like by hook, by crook, you must save it and do this two person must end up together because that's it doesn't have to be that way. What you said is right, you have to be able to be open to changing your mind and making certain decisions when you have proper information. 
And sometimes it's okay to pivot. So I think on that note of like change and making different decisions after moving from that dating phase where you're, you know, filled with all the happy chemicals and you're just in la la love land and then moving on to marriage. I mean, of course, I'm sure you're still in la la love land, but I would imagine that the dust would have settled a little bit since then. I could also imagine that there might have been a change in mindset of sorts, maybe, right? So were there any changes that you observed in your own or your husband's personal finance philosophy after you got married? Good question. For my husband, I noticed that after we got married, he got a lot more obsessed with saving money. And that's because he felt that it is his job to save up as much as possible to prepare for the next phase of our life, which is the possibility of having children. When we first got married, I bought him a, a financial planning session with a financial planner. So he had someone to talk to so he could talk through like his worries and about like his plans in order to whether or not what he's doing currently to save money, to invest money is enough. So he's just more or less like following that plan now to a T. For myself, I feel like I've been independent for such a long time. So from my side, I still find it weird to have someone to pay for some of my expenses. I really don't know how I feel about it. I think I appreciate it, but I don't particularly like it. You know, it, it still feels weird. I will get used to it, I guess. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, I don't know. But what I do know is that I enjoy working, I enjoy making money, and I do not want to have the expectation that someone should pay for me just because, you know, he's my partner, he's my spouse. So I guess that's the, not so much the changes, but something that I've decided that I want to maintain, a mindset that I want to maintain going forward. On that note, I would assume that you would have communicated how you felt about, you know, all these different points that you brought up, like, you know, having someone pay for you and how you personally felt about that. And there would have been some conversations of sort to navigate how you guys would manage things as a couple moving forward. So, you know, a lot of our podcast listeners, I think some might be in a relationship, some might be in a relationship in the future. And I'm sure they're curious to know what are some good actionable ways that they can plan their finances together when they perhaps get married. So we want to actually pick your brains on this because we know you have written extensively on this topic. You've also spoken a lot about this topic. But what are three ways that work really well for you and your partner when you plan your finance as a married couple? We took a financial behavior test together so we found out where which part of our personalities align and which one is you know uh, a bit more different uh, than each other and then we also decided not to combine finances yet it's actually quite common like we hear advice from so many people you know when they get married they combine finances and that worked for them and agreed but we had a really nice chat about it and we decided on the like you pay for x expense i pay for y expense and that worked really well it, it's a lot clearer and in terms of paying bills as well the third one is that we organize our financial document we made a really nice date night out of it we sat down together we created an excel <laughs> 
And then we organize our financial documents. We put all our insurance documents in one place. We put, you know, like data about like which accounts do we each have, how to access those accounts, what we still have to do, you know, in our you know financial to-do list, about wills and, and estate planning. So we have a clear idea on what where each of us stand in terms of paperwork. So it's no longer like, oh, this is how you are. It's more to like, okay, here are the actual legal documents that support you know our financial decisions these things aren't sexy but you gotta do it anyway you made a lovely fun date night out of what compiling insurance policies like it was so fun (laughs) no honestly it was so fun it was so fun you know people will say that oh you know budgeting isn't sexy and things like that but like if you're both like into the same things right and you know you're not stressed you have like nice hot chocolate or whatever you have like nice dessert while you're doing all this document it's genuinely genuinely fun and i think we have to take out like this stereotype where like budgeting is this uh, activity and just accept that you know you're doing it with someone you love so therefore whatever it could be it's fun because it's with someone you love and i can imagine it is it must be really nice to be married to someone who is equally as financially organized as you are. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my God. I'm so happy. <laughs> I was prepared to do all the Excel by myself. but <laughs> So, yes, that was a really, really nice surprise. I, I wanted to just kind of pick your brains a little bit on the topic of the financial behavioral test that you talked about. And I know you also highly recommend that couples go for it. It gives you both an opportunity to compare thoughts, approach and behaviors when it comes to, to, to money. For example, you did mention that he has a preference for having financial advisors, whereas for you, you like to be more um, independent about it. So, I mean, what would be a reason that people might be afraid or not willing or wanting to actually try out this financial behavioral comparison test? If you have something to hide, I would imagine that you probably don't want to share this kind of information. As surprising as it is, you know, some people, they get married without knowing that the person is is actually in huge debt. That actually happens and quite often as well. So if you are someone who is hiding this huge information from your partner because you are expected to, you know, like be, be the breadwinner or whatever, then, you know, asking them like really deep questions about money management. We're all scared to confront what we fear, correct? And if you are not willing to open up your skeletons in the, in the closet, so to speak, then you probably don't want to do these kind of things. In which case, it's that's one of the things that we were talking about earlier, lah, where if you don't have that level of transparency, then it's quite hard moving forward as a couple. But also, like when you talk about relationship, right? Like, I'm always going to go back to research. And there's this institute, Gottman Institute, where they research relationship specifically. They track couples for years and, and find out, you know, what works, what doesn't. And they found out that the number one thing that drives couples apart is resentment. But other than that, about the importance of having more good interactions rather than like bad interactions. For every one bad interaction, you need 10 good interactions to counter that. So the ratio has to be like around 10 to 1, right? And I guess, you know, if you are in a relationship where the ratio is a bit more skewed, for example, like you fight twice for every like one, you know, kind 
word, then I would guess like you wouldn't even want to open this kind of conversation about taking financial behavior tests and, and whatnot. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, good interaction doesn't necessarily mean, you know, saying sweet words and kind of being all happy dappy, but also being brave enough to have those difficult conversations as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, again, not an expert in leadership like at all. <laughs> but from what I understand about like definition of, of good interaction, it's like acknowledgement of the other person. So even that I, I can't quit like, that particular one study now, but like they found out that one good indicator of divorce or separation is that when the other person stops responding to the other person, even when they're sharing good news, right? So let's say that you just say like, you know, I had a good day at work today and the other person doesn't see anything. Then that's an indicator for not such a good relationship because you're not acknowledging, you're not saying, oh, that's good. Or like, you're not celebrating their successes. Like you're just not acknowledging them as a person. So I guess, you know, relating this back to personal finance, common sense says that you want to celebrate your small wins. And if you can't celebrate small wins, even financially with your partner, then you're probably not on the right track. What approach would you recommend, Soraya, in the case of couples where one party is earning a lot more than the other? How would you say the dynamics of the conversation about finances with the partner would then change? Oh, that's a hard question, but I'm going to do my best to answer it. Personally, I think that it boils down to how they approach traditional gender roles so if they are very traditional and there's nothing wrong with with being traditional and i just want to pinpoint that like there's nothing wrong with being traditional at all but if they are traditional you know they they expect the man to be the provider and the woman to be the nurturer or the woman to to be you know the stay-at-home mom or whatever then that's not a problem with the man earning more maybe it's even expected from the relationship right however if they are traditional and if the case is that the woman is the one who earns more, then I think that can bring a lot of resentment in the relationship where, you know, like she's not happy with how much he's earning. He's not happy because he is trying his best, but he's not earning more. So I don't think they'll have a very happy relationship. However, if they are not bothered by traditional gender roles and they, they don't really care about what people say, they don't care about what their parents say, they don't care about what society say, they're very sure with their own dynamics. I think it doesn't matter. There's no problem at all in regards of who earns more or who earns less. If in the case of like they have to decide one person have to stay home to take care of their children, then it's the person who's earning less or the person with less career or income progression. So they can be, make decisions based on that, not just based on gender alone. Again, I just want to, to, to really point out that there's nothing wrong at all with being traditional. Just make sure that, you know, reduce the resentment as much as possible. And on that note of tradition, thank you so much for sharing with us your answer to the question, by the way. We know it's a bit of a tough and controversial one, so we really appreciate your perspective on that. But yeah, on the note of tradition, we do want to ask you about your wedding planning process, if that's fine. You know, many people have been engaged. I was one of them recently. So, you know, it's taking the time to ask on behalf of myself and some of my friends out there who are now in the midst of wedding planning and it's it's a complicated process, can be very, very stressful as well. And I know this whole conversation could totally be an episode on its own, but we mm. wanted to pick your brains. What were some ground rules um, that you set for yourself and your um, husband right now at the point fiancé, which you believe helped set you up for success 
and for a less stressful wedding planning process, if you could share that with us. Sure. Well, first of all, congratulations, Janice. Very, very exciting. It's uh, it's it, it's fun. And it, you did ask about uh, how I approached it. So in my case, that everything that was planned didn't work out because of COVID. So it actually got cancelled. But before it got cancelled, it went a little bit like, you know, you have like in your head, like how a wedding that you wanted it to be, right? Whether that's a small one or a big one, whatever. In my head, I wanted a, a small one, like a really small, really an intimate one. But when parents get into the picture, it turns out they have a lot of friends. And it's not uncommon in, in Asian society. You know, it, they were talking upwards of like 1,500 guests. Oh and I know. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, for my sister's wedding, they invited 2,000 <laughs> people. So <laughs> this is like a nice middle ground. But yeah, at first I thought of like standing my ground and telling them like, but no, you know, this is my wedding day, my reception. But because they felt strongly about having their friends over, eventually my approach is that I have accepted that it's my parents' event and not mine. So after I have accepted that fact, I gave them a budget. I told them that I have X amount. You can do whatever you want. You can invite how many people you want to invite. As long as you don't go over budget, I'm happy with it. So that was my approach. They were happy. I was happy. I see it as a way to maintain harmony. But, you know, at the end of the day, I actually got it my way because the event got cancelled. <laughs> so I actually got like the small wedding that I wanted. But yeah, I, I didn't regret the whole like let my parents plan it at all it was actually quite nice because you know my mom was so happy my dad surprisingly happy <laughs> he was he was so hands-on surprisingly and it actually took a lot of things off my plate because they wanted to help out they wanted to plan therefore I don't have to I was actually quite pleased by that like lack of work almost because they wanted to be so involved so that's how um, I did mine I think you know People who wanted to be like more hands-on with their own wedding might not be happy with my approach or might not want to do the same thing. But personally, I, I, I just really wanted to make sure that my parents enjoyed themselves on the day. And I was also told by a friend of mine that it's okay to have a big wedding because that also means you're going to have uh, more ang pao. So <laughs> that kind of also helped the whole decision-making process. Mm, I mean, it sounded like you found a way to make it kind of like a family project as well, right? By involving your families very, very majorly into the whole event and to you know, make it an event that was just you and your husband. But I'm just curious, I think especially when it comes to like the budgeting and the expenses, that's often like a huge point of contention between like the girl side and, and the guy side in a way. So how did you and your husband arrive at that budget? Was it something that was very difficult? Did you guys have like things that were, I, I think you mentioned earlier, right? COVID sort of like came in the way and there were some obstacles that came in between. So how did you guys manage the financial part of the of the wedding? Okay, math-wise, how it worked was we surveyed for different packages, right? And that's like the low range, mid range, and the high range. So we took like the midway one, and then both our, of our parents told us how many guests that they wanted to be at this wedding. So we basically did like a really simple calculation, how much per pack times how many guests, and then we add on 50% to that to cover incidentals and other costs 
And that's how we arrived at our figure. It was a big amount, not, you know, not like overwhelmingly big, just like kind of like the standard amount, I guess, for formerly weddings. But that's how we did the calculations. Basically, maths. <laughs> we, we just use maths. So we've spoken about from the dating phase to the marriage phase, all the way to covering budgeting and expense planning and even conflict management, which was a really important thing that came out. I like how you made your entire wedding planning a family project. But I do have a really curious question to ask you. What is a money-related pitfall that you would like to share with our listeners that they do not make the same mistake. I'm, I'm going to you know, bring this to the context of relationships because we're on the subject of relationships, which is at the end of the day, you can only rely on yourself financially at the end of the day. And me, I'm, I'm just assuming that all or most of your listeners are women. And I just want to share to everyone listening that you know, you... Maybe some of you have this idea in your head that, you know, a, a husband should be, you know, a provider. And that's completely fine and good. But there's a reason why a lot of women, their number one advice to younger women is to have your own cash. And that is something that they share with us so that we don't do the same mistakes. So I feel like it is my obligation to share their advice to you right now so that we remember it and we try our best to not let this again this amazing chemicals in our head during the love process to to hopefully like do you know to to also take care of ourselves while we are in a relationship but basically it's, it's nice being in a relationship like don't get me wrong it's super super nice however there are many laws that do not work at your advantage. Maybe, you know, some of you also, perhaps Muslim girls are listening in. Sharia laws, especially, they are not in our favor. And it's a very hard and tough conversation, but you only have yourself to rely on at the end of the day. So if you can, the best possible situation for you to get married is when you're financially stable, just so that you're not financially desperate or at mercy of someone when you are in a relationship. So I will end it at that. Thank you so much for that. So Soraya, where can our guests find you? I live on Twitter, so you can find me at Soraya RR or otherwise my website is ringgitoringgit.com. Yeah, I cover everything related to personal finance, money management. I call myself a personal busybody. <laughs> so come and be busybody with me and let's have fun talking about money matters. What? an interactive and insightful conversation we've had with you today, Soraya, and all in the name of love, right? As we're celebrating this episode in conjunction with Valentine's Day. So, you know, just to wrap up the episode, we have so many key takeaways from you. Some of them include the importance of taking on personal finance conversations with a spirit of openness and just bearing in mind when you have that conversation, if you want some information from your partner, be open to offer those information yourself first. And so there are also ways for you to understand each other better. And one of that way would be to take a financial behavior test. And you've also mentioned before, get to know each other better 
and have that conversation on what each other's financial behavior inclinations are. And you also talked about how you can make finance discussions fun. It doesn't always have to be boring or scary or dry. It can always be done over a cup of tea, coffee, a pizza date even. So that was really great. We enjoyed that tip a lot. So thank you so much, Suraya. We've learned so much from you today. And we hope these tips can help all our listeners out there to navigate these personal finance discussions better. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! 